I, I stood um, at my grandma, grandfather's funeral and I was utterly gobsmacked, I have to say, because I remember seeing a, a bunch of old people and I was quite a young boy and there was this overwhelming, well, there was sadness, but there was also overwhelming joy. Uh, my grandfather was a great man in my eyes, and I'm sure in many others' eyes. He was a church leader, a church planter as well, kind of a man before his time. But more importantly, my grandfather was a Christian. I remember in that same year, um, a, a boy in my class at school, a guy called Andy, I knew him quite well, he had the same name. He died of leukemia. I remember going to his funeral too. It was very unlike my grandfather's funeral. There was no joy, just sorrow and tears. Oh, he had a fighting spirit, he was a bright lad, but the world had got the better of him. But I suppose most importantly, Andrew wasn't a Christian. At my grandfather's funeral, friends prayed, thanking God that Fred, as he was called, was now home. My grandfather had asked a close friend to share, sorry, my grandmother had asked a close friend to share something of who my grandfather was and who he had been in his last moments as grandma had whispered in his ears the great truths that he was clinging hold of and singing wonderful hymns into his ears. At Andrew's funeral, there was no hope that there, were, there was at my grandfather's funeral, just bitter grief. And I, I suppose you see that kind of hopelessness in a number of funerals. I, I suppose it's well depicted, and it's probably in your minds. You've, I guess many of you have seen four weddings and a funeral, that funeral that sort of sits in the middle of the film. And I suppose the thing that typifies the mood of that funeral is that, that very well-known poem by W.H. Auden, which says, stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos, and with muffled drum, bring out the mourners, let the coffin come. You see, the difference is that one has heard the Easter story of Jesus Christ, believed it, and put their trust in him. And one has ignored the Easter story and died without hope. That's the difference in a funeral. See, on Good Friday, we remember that Christ has suffered the punishment that our sins deserve. And if you were there, you know, we, on Friday, we, we looked at that in detail, that he was our penalty-bearing substitute. And uh, it is wonderful, isn't it? A privilege to look at that. We just sung of it, and I've been teaching that all week to a bunch of youth in a pretty grotty place called Prestatin. And I, we can all rejoice, can't we, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. It's laid on the Lord Jesus. I've also been thinking about, you know, that there's so many scholars around at the moment who describe that, that wrath of God being poured out on, as an atoning sacrifice in Jesus as cosmic child abuse. No, it's not. It is the greatest act of love that has ever been shown to us in the gift of God's Son to be placed on a cross. Yes, it is sacrificial love, determined before the beginning of creation, but it is a love that, is, that will satisfy the justice of God for our rebellion against him. But death is not the end. Good Friday is not the end of the story. 
For Christ, as for those who have trusted Christ, there is more, there's hope. Which is why we celebrate today. Declaring, we haven't done it today, but Christians around the world just shout out to each other, Christ is risen. And you shout, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. For death could not hold him. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we celebrate the resurrection of the dead. Our great hope today. He has assured us in that if we've put our trust in him. See, today is all about resurrection. I put on your sheet, um, it's all about resurrection. We're going to look at some of those issues briefly before we dive into the passage. It is not uh, kind of resuscitation. It is not reincarnation. Resurrection is the belief that one was physically, clinically dead, but has been made alive again. It's unlike the Buddhist understanding of reincarnation. Uh, you know, the one when, when someone dies, they will most likely be brought back. And if that was me, it's probably an elephant or something like that, isn't it? You know, but, you know, you come back as something else. I probably would regress. That is, there's no physical con- uh, kind of continuity between what was and what, what is to come. Resurrection is not reincarnation. There is this physical continuity between our lives now and what will be in the future. Our life eternal. And resurrection is also not resuscitation, as some would have us believe. Famously, the so-called enlightened Venturini of 1800-ish popularized this view. And what he said is that Jesus, when he died on the cross, well, didn't die. He just swooned, Venturini said. And, And the Roman guards, who were pretty good at this, at killing people, when they speared Jesus, they didn't kill him. They just gave him a little poke, you know. And, and that was their, that was a, it was not enough to kill him. But can I suggest to you that for, for a Roman guard not, not to be able to kill Jesus, someone he so vehemently hated, someone, an, an ability he had, he was so well trained in as well. It, that's an absolutely absurd view, to be honest. And many, many have dismissed it. Jesus was dead and later resurrected from the dead. Moreover, many uh, Christians and, and even secular historians consider the resurrection of Jesus, whether they believe in it or not, in its entirety or not, many still understand, and I put it on your sheets, the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. <clears throat> Famously, Professor Thomas Arnold, who is a chair of modern history at Oxford, well acquainted with the value of you know, history and evidence to determine the, the kind of validity of a historical um, incident. This great scholar said this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in, his, in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of the fair inquirer, than the great sign which God hath given us, that Christ died and rose again from the dead. And uh, let me give you a few factors of evidence, which which he notes down, but many other scholars do too. Um, They are numerous, but let's just look at a few. First factor, the Roman seal of guards was broken at the tomb. A factor which no one outside of Roman authority could have achieved. And it's the last thing that anyone under Roman jurisdiction would have wanted. It's the first factor of evidence. Second factor, the tomb, it's an obvious one, the tomb was empty, wasn't it? The only ones who might want to have stolen the body 
that is his followers, well, they come back to the scene of the crime the next day. Either they're very, very dumb, or this is a good piece of evidence to show the validity of this historical fact that he rose from the dead. Third factor, a huge stone was moved. No group could have done this without serious noise and effort, but also without serious, serious equipment. These stones were were dropped into a V-shape down a groove and, and basically dropped into the place. They were never designed to be moved, or at least quickly moved. Fourth factor. The only thing that was left in the grave was the only thing of value that a grave robber might have taken. Body? Nothing. Grave clothes? Yeah. Fifth factor. That's the most compelling evidence of all, I think. The Lord Jesus appeared. Uh, he appeared not just to a few people. and You've got to hear this. If it was just a few, and this was kind of a conspiracy to kind of you know, bring down the Romans and probably the Jewish synagogue as well at the time, the Sanhedrin and so on, uh, just to, by his followers, then, yeah, you kind of would have been able to point the finger, but he appeared to hundreds. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul notes to 500 in one incident alone. But Jesus appeared over a period of one month. <coughs> and it's recorded in Tacitus and recorded in Josephus. Uh, that is history outside, of Bible, uh, outside of the Bible too. See, the historicity of, of the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is very, very difficult to challenge. Now, I understand that it may not be easy to accept and put your faith in, but the as evidence as such, that is to dismiss it, well, if you dismiss this, you jeopardise every ancient history, basically. Because the history is so vast, the evidence is so vast. But the resurrection, like the cross of Christ, must not only be understood in historical terms. But most importantly, it must be understood, as I put there, as the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. You see, without the resurrection, the, the, the gospel is without hope. The good news for Christians, we have no hope as Christians. Christ's resurrection is described as the first fruits. That is to say, what he has achieved, so we will also know. As we die, those who have trusted in Christ Jesus and his resurrection, we also will be raised with him. See, the gospel depends on this glorious truth. That death has been defeated, which is why my grandfather's funeral was, was such a celebration. Because as the Bible says, he's just fallen asleep. He's with his saviour. As the risen king, the inevitable promised consequence follows. The risen king will one day judge. So if we're, we're ready and we have trusted in Christ's death on the cross as our penalty-bearing substitute, then we too will be raised and avoid the just judgment because the judgment will be born on Christ. But you see, if Christ has not been raised, then nor will we. But sadly, this teaching on the resurrection is all too often ignored. See, I guess many of you, if I asked you to explain the doctrine, your understanding of the cross, I bet you could go through 
Christ is our ransom. Christ reconciles us to God. He's our penal substitutionary sacrificial atonement. Or you could probably jump out, throw out a few loads of words like that. It'd be easy. Justification. Yeah, no problem. But physical resurrection of Jesus' body, it does seem a bit far-fetched, doesn't it, sometimes? And a bit too difficult to explain to people. Too far removed from our scientific, rational minds. Jesus died and rose to new life and is now alive with his Father in heaven. It is not easy to understand, but it is utterly crucial to the gospel. So what did happen when my grandfather died? And what happens when we die? Well, our assurance of life eternal depends on this so important historical but gospel truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one commentator put it this way. Were it not for his resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth might have appeared as no more than a line in Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, if he were mentioned at all. See, the implication being is that the resurrection, beyond all of events in Christ's life, all the miracles, the cross, is the unique thing, the notable thing in history. The gospel is incomplete without it, and therefore our salvation depends on it. And that is why we're looking at the Bible today, to understand it, in order to be convinced of this gospel truth and examine our own response to what the Lord Jesus has done that first Easter day. So I'm going to highlight, we're going to get to a text now, so keep your eyes down, have a look at that. And I'm going to highlight three aspects of the resurrection of Jesus. We see that in the narrative here, the end of Mark's gospel. First, the evidence before the women. Secondly, the revelation uh, given the women. And thirdly, the response of the women. We see where we're going? Let's look at firstly the evidence sent. Cast your eyes down, if you can, with me at verse 1. See, it paints a picture of Saturday night. Presumably the women were unaware that Jesus' body had, had, the, the anointing of Jesus' body had taken place, shown in John 19 and other places. So verse 2 and following describe the events of that first Easter morning. But to believe in this resurrection, there needed to be evidence. Let's look at some of it, if we can. Firstly, the... Um, Stone is rolled away. Look at that in verse 4. Now, as I said, it was typical for tombs to have an inner, but also an outer chamber. Uh, and it, a very small opening went between the two. And we know from Mark's record in, in uh, verse 3 that the women were unaware that the Roman guard and seal had been placed on the tomb with this large stone covering at the outer entrance. They say, look what they say in verse 3 at the end there. Who will roll the stone away? From the entrance tomb, they have no idea it's gone. And Mark shows his usual restraint. If you know Mark's gospel well, it's just kind of, it's a little pithy statement, isn't it? Oh, it's just moved away. There's no explanation given here. He simply records it's moved. The enormous weight of a stone dropped into that groove, as I mentioned. Yeah, it locked it in place. It had just been moved. But it is the first piece of evidence to show that Jesus Christ is risen. Second piece, empty tomb. Look at verse 6. So you've got the antechamber, you've got the outside chamber of the, the tomb. It led through this very narrow door to the inner chamber where the body will lie. But there's no body there. It's gone. You've got this messenger for God. makes clear what would have been apparent for the eyes to see. It's, it's kind of patronising, isn't it? Really? He's not here. 
Really? Okay. He's not here. See, the evidence on its own could lead to all sorts of conclusions, but together they become more and more compelling. So let's look at the third piece. The women saw and heard first. You see that in verses 4 to 7. It's intriguing. You see, the men who had previously been surrounding Jesus and going everywhere, you read through all the gospel accounts. They're there again and again and again. The disciples, men, 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 men. But they don't disperse. They feared for their lives. But the the women, they faithfully returned uh, to come back to the tomb at loving service of their master. And we see in verse 1, look, they brought spices. To embalm and anoint the body, uh, to embalm the body, sorry. Verse 2, you also see um, they got up early. They were coming to anoint his body here. You see, it was the women that were faithful and the women that God spoke to through this young man dressed in white, the messenger. Now, that might not seem to you unusual in our culture. For women, rightly, hear me right. For women rightly have equal status, equal rights uh, within our culture, under the law. But it it is their account we read here. And and you must understand that given in first century Roman law, a woman's testimony in a court of law was worth nothing. Like literally nothing. This becomes evidence in itself. See, if something were to become, were to be fabricated, uh, then you would have stated that men were present. You know, if you want this to be evidence, proper evidence, you say men were there. Otherwise, everyone would say, oh, it's just a fabrication. No one would make up um, evidence like this, just saying women were there, because it would be treated as, as, as rubbish, as it was in the early church for a number of centuries. The fact that women actually are here actually makes the account much, much more persuasive. For, for no community of believers would ever have made this up. Why would they? Because in the culture, it'd just be thrown out. It's dismissed. There's an utter load of rubbish. So you see, the evidence is there. In the other accounts uh, that you can read in the Gospels, it's much more plentiful. But there's enough. There is enough. Now, for some of you, maybe some of your friends... It will never seem enough. I don't know if you ever had a conversation with someone, and maybe this is you here tonight, I'm not sure. Oh, you've heard the evidence, absolutely, but it doesn't matter how rational and convincing the evidence is, you just don't want to believe, do you? And you may have some questions unanswered. You may know someone like this. But in the end, even if you had all the answers, maybe you just want to cross your arms and say, no, thank you. Don't want to hear any more. But can I say to you, just give it a go tonight. Listen. Listen to the evidence. Hear the compelling uh, story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Open up your heart and mind if you can, because what this brings today is amazing, but to come, wow. Zeno, the pre-Socratic philosopher, don't worry about him, he talked about the infinity of space. If you've done maths, you'll love this. Um, but he talked about the infinity of space between points. You may have, you may have heard this. It, by the fact that you can divide something up it, it, all the time and multiply its effect all the, you know, to infinity, basically. 
And, and perhaps you're a bit like that, I don't know, in, in the terms of asking questions. Or maybe your friends are like that. You, you, know, you, you answer one question, but they go, oh, I've got another two here. And then you answer one of those, and they say, well, I've got another three that come from that answer one that you've just answered. And you just keep dividing and dividing and dividing until you get an infinity of questions. Well, can I encourage you to say, you will never know all the answers. Never. My point is, the evidence is enough. The evidence is enough. You see, personally, I don't believe the Christian faith and, and put my trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because I know everything. I don't. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because I know something of the evidence. I know something about him. My faith, my belief is evidentially based, yes. But more importantly, it is, it is revelation-based, as we're going to look at now in, this, in our second point. Because God has revealed his truth to us, which is what happened to these women here. So we've seen the evidence, and let's now look at the revelation, to our second point, the revelation. I don't know about you, but evidence can always be misinterpreted. I'm looking to my policeman here. Um, because uh, I'm sure he deals with this every single day. I've been watching, I, I think I've, yeah, I've done them all now, The West Wing. I've got to Series 7 now, but I, I rather enjoyed it. I might go back to Series 1. But um, it, it was an intriguing chain of events that I watched in this, uh, I think it was in Series 7, as, you know, The West Wing, the, the media moguls of the, the presidential lot, you know, they, they put this piece of evidence out there. And it was interesting how everyone interpreted this piece of evidence in different ways. So, some felt that a coup was happening within, you know, within the electorate or you know, within, within um, the, the party, sorry, it was. You know, some believed that uh, it, the, the, what the evidence will, might bring was kind of an international security crisis. And others just thought it was funny and just thought the president was having a bad day. It was just one piece of evidence placed out there and there was these three very differing opinions of what that evidence led to. That was understood in a humorous way, but when the truth was revealed, when someone explained what had been going on, clarity came. And similarly, evidence regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it can be understood in a variety of ways. We need clarification. We need someone to speak and make the truth known, to join the dots up, if you like, which is what happens in our story. And let's Let's note a few things about this kind of clarifying revelation. Firstly, you see in verse 5, it's from God. Now, God doesn't get a mention here. He reveals his truth through his messenger, this, this messenger dressed in white here. Literally, it's a valiant young man. And many understood him, many understood, of course, and you'd imagine it, an angel of some form, a messenger from God. You see, the invisible God makes himself known reveals himself through this supernatural figure. Uh, the whiteness of his clothing suggests a, a dazzling glory, showing it can only be really from God. But what does this revelation show? Again, turn to, to verse 7 now, if you can. It shows a fulfillment of promise, as I've put on your little outlines there. You see, that Christ was raised, it not only fulfills lots of the Old Testament promises, we think especially of Isaiah 53, which says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. But Jesus had made promises himself. Only days before, in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, where he says, I will go before you into Galilee. 
And verse 7 of our passage shows the messenger stating that this promise would be fulfilled. Look at it, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he has told you. An appearance we know to have taken place. See, God reveals himself to the woman to fulfill the promises. But lastly, we see, and you see on your outlines, also to continue his kingdom work. I guess you'll agree with me on this, but the actions of God aren't always self-evident, are they, in the world around us and in our own lives? So God's loving actions are, are so often accompanied by words to bring clarity, revelation. And the emptiness of the tomb possesses, if you like, no factual value in itself, does it? So God sends a messenger to announce the fact of the resurrection and to crystallise in these women's hearts and minds their faith in their risen Lord Jesus. God announces by revelation through the man dressed in white what the evidence pointed toward. It crystallises it. So verse 6, don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Who was crucified? He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. You see, the revelation from God confirms uh, what, what is known in the heart and the mind of, 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 the, of the hearer, the women here. See, many of us might know the, the evidence of the resurrection and, and be convinced. So what a brilliant day it is to be looking at the, at the revelation from God in his word. If you like to, to, to reveal this truth to us with clarity. As he rises to new life. God reveals himself now through his word, the Bible. And what a privilege it is for us to hear him speak. I hope you realise that when you open the pages of the Bible. You're hearing the very voice of God. God is not distant uh, in his kingdom. He's not abandoned any of us. But rather he works through his word to extend his kingdom. Jesus, in meeting his disciples in Galilee, as promised in verse 7, brings together what seems lost, and Jesus goes ahead of his people so his his work might never stop. Likewise, we must know that Jesus will not let his work be thwarted. Death could not defeat him. And it, it is his defeat of death that inspired and motivated his disciples to continue preaching, despite the fear of their lives. Just... What a great thing to do in Easter week in, in, now, to read the story of the, the apostles continuing Christ's work, his resurrected work. Why don't you read Acts this week? What a brilliant way to do that. I might do that on holiday. You see, the, the resurrection is a, it's the crescendo of the gospel. It, it kind of brings clarity to, to, to everything, makes sense of all that has gone past, that Christ died for sins but was raised to new life to give us hope for eternity. It's the same hope that we now have in our hearts if we put our faith in him. So how should we respond? How do we respond to all the evidence we've seen but also the, the revelation that brings clarity to that evidence? How do we respond? Let's look at the women. The women were typical of many throughout Mark's gospel. Firstly, Look at verse 8. That's all we're looking at now to finish. They were bewildered, weren't they? Now, it's not confused in the original. Bewildered is a kind of amazed. I think we can understand that, can't we? 
amazed at the kind of the awesomeness of what they kind of not seen, but also what they had seen. Manifested in physical trembling, we see. Secondly, they were silent. Again, it has been mistranslated, not in a sinful way here, that they sought to keep what they knew to themselves, depriving others of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he'd risen from the dead. No, we know their silence was temporary from the other accounts. Rather, what we're seeing once again is that it demonstrates the magnitude of what they knew. And I suppose what we're seeing here in the silence was a kind of some kind of reverent kind of contemplation of what it would mean for them. And you can imagine, can't you? How would you have felt if you'd seen all this? Your heart would be kind of wanting to explode out of your chest at this point. Their thinking would be frenzied, trying to work out all the implications of what had been revealed to them. Jesus had risen from the dead. We saw him dead a few days ago. Now he's risen. Do we tell people? Yeah, let's go and do it. Lastly, we see the women responded as they were afraid. I mean, they were alarmed, if you look at verse 5 there. It's the same word in the Greek, and they were afraid. Literally, um, it means full of fear. Again, I think we can be sympathetic toward that, can't we? I hope so. And we respond to God in so many different ways, don't we? In gratitude, in service, in love. But we must never forget that God is also to be feared. But Jesus, by rising to new life, demonstrates most significantly that he is God. The empty tomb, the stone rolled away, all the evidence and the subsequent revelation points to the conclusion that yet Jesus is truly the Son of God. How are we going to respond? The women were amazed, silenced by this awesome truth that they're they're witnessing but fearful also they're fearful because they realize that Jesus is who he said he was the son of God to be served who would one day come and judge let me flick you back to close the last verse of W.H. Auden's very famous poem sums up I think the hopelessness of life and an eternity without the risen Lord Jesus who we've just been learning about. The verse says this, the stars are not wanted now, put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood for nothing now can ever come to any good. I suppose I want to finish with this. Do you want that read at your funeral? Or would you rather a celebration of a life depending on Jesus Christ, the risen King? See, on Good Friday we remember Christ appropriately as he hung on a cross with thanks and gratitude for that amazing sacrifice. But we remember him appropriately today with amazement, uh, with a little bit of fear, because he's Lord. 
That is his king. He's to be served. He is to be submitted to. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And therefore, as Christians we say, hallelujah, which basically means praise the Lord. Let's pray that we do that today and every day until we meet him face to face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, to, to read those words of W.H. Auden is a, is a saddening thing. It may be beautiful as a piece of poetry, but to have no good to look forward to, to have no hope is a terrible existence. But we thank you so much today, this Easter Sunday, that we celebrate appropriately that Jesus the crucified Saviour is also the risen Lord. That the tomb is empty, that he has defeated death. And if we know him and we've put our trust in him as both Saviour and Lord, we can live not a hopeless existence, but a joyful existence. One with hope. That hope for now, but also hope for eternity. And may we praise you because of that today, tomorrow, this week, until we meet you face to face. Amen.